Today on Real Faith for Real Life, we are talking about everyone's favorite time of year, an extra hour of sleep, falling back. And the new MacBooks are out, but if you've got an old one, no problem. We'll show you how to make it look new. All that and more as we continue our study through the Book of Romans coming right up. This is Real Faith for Real Life, a podcast from Cascade Fellowship in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All right, so we know that real faith intersects with real life. That's so right. We are talking about things that happen in our life and how faith kind of plays into that, right? That's right. So this first topic that we're talking about today, or this first uh, category, I guess, article, is talking about daylight saving time ending. I hate daylight saving time ending. Mm-hmm. My kids don't know what time it is. My dog is worst <laughs> of all. Like I'm not. It's not worth the extra hour of sleep. That's right. You get that one extra hour for one day, and it feels good. But then yeah. it gets dark before you're even off work. Right. So it's like you're you can't go jogging. You can't play tennis or pickleball. Not that we could, because it's wicked cold here anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I hate the dark in the afternoon, the evening. Yeah. Um, but you know what? As bad as it is for us, I saw an article that talked about just how incredibly bad it is for one person who has. 1,500 clocks to manually set back in her royal residences. That person, of course, would be... Uh, Queen Elizabeth, I would guess. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I read she has a whole team of clock experts who have to spend a whole weekend moving these clocks back manually. And uh, it takes them about 40 hours, they said. There are 600 clocks in Buckingham Palace, 450 in Windsor Castle, and 50 in another place. I mean... That is a lot of clocks to manually change, too. Yeah, they're no beautiful. Clocks. They had some pictures in this article, but uh, not that easy to roll back. So yep. anytime you hate daylight saving time, just remember, at least you don't have 1,500 clocks. And your manually. clocks probably change. Most of them change yes. automatically anyway. Yes, thank so. the Lord for that. Right. <laughs> so this next story that we're talking about, we love talking about Apple and Mac, right? Absolutely. So you got a new MacBook. Let's talk about yeah. the notch. There's a lot to love about the new Mac. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, for one thing, I have I have ports again, <laughs> Brian. My la- my laptop bag. <laughs> it used to be just filled with dongles and adapters, and I can relate. The one you need is always the one that's not in that's there. Right. Yep. But now I've got an SD port and an HDMI port and all sorts of stuff. Yep. And the computing power is un- unbelievable. I have this, you know, 50 megapixel camera open like 80 pictures at once in Photoshop and yeah. it was like, "Meh, whatever." That's But That's good. You know, one of the best things about the new Mac is that the display goes all the way to the edges. It's just enormous. Mm-hmm. It makes like video editing a lot easier to have that much screen real estate. But in order to push the display to the edges, they had to create a notch around the camera, just like you have on your iPhone right. or most phones today. And people love it or hate it. Of course. That's the usual thing, right? I mean, there's outrage. How dare they put a notch in a laptop? (laughs) And then there's acceptance. And then there's just like, man, I got to have a notch too. Like every laptop maker is going to do notches. You just know it from now on. So if you have an old MacBook and you want to look like you got a new MacBook, don't worry. There's a guy named Chris Jones who made an app just for you. It'll create a virtual notch, a little black square on your screen to make it look like you've got a new MacBook. It's not worth it. 
sort of. <laughs> Losing more space? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's taking conforming to a whole other level, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I thought when I saw this article. I was like, man, there's peer pressure in this world to conform, yeah. to always have the latest and greatest, to fit in, you know? And that's what we're talking about today as we continue our study through the book of Romans. Mm-hmm. Paul, as he gets into this practical application part of his letter, he... he gets into it by saying, as an umbrella over the whole thing, you have two choices, conform to what everybody else is doing or be transformed by God. And we're going to talk about that as we dive into Romans today. All right, so we are finishing... Our series in Romans this week, we're going to take a look at Romans 12 through 15, right? That's right. Yeah, so um, why don't you kind of set us up for what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so Romans, we've been saying, is structured around uh, the gospel outline, sin, salvation, service. Yeah. Paul's just laid out some really deep theology, as uh, you've seen in parts one through seven of this series. And now he kind of turns a corner and says, this is what you do with all that knowledge. That's good. We're going to actually read the first two verses of Romans 12. It says, or Paul actually is saying, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this week in your message, you made it sound like these two verses are the key really to understanding the rest of the letter. How's that? Yeah, a lot of practical teaching follows, but you know, I'm really glad we went through parts one through seven of the series first, because you have to put them in the context, and the context is the gospel. So God has saved you, not based on the good things that you do. But once you're saved, he does enable you and expect mm-hmm. you to begin to uh, conform to his will, as we're going to see. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different things in these chapters that I hope should make you squirm in your chair <laughs> a little bit. In fact, this whole series, like, you know, if I'm doing my job as a preacher right, there's, you know, there's people just yeah. squirming make in you their a chairs a little bit. That's yeah. right. But the thing to remember is this all flows out of how God has been good to us. Like he said in that verse, in view of God's mercy, this is how then you respond. So the beautiful thing we see is that doctrine, chapters 1 through 11, leads to doxology, praise, Mm -hmm. at the end of chapter 11, and then into our our duty to respond. So that's the thing we see in all of Paul's letters is doctrine, doxology, duty. Doctrine, doxology, duty. You see that in almost all of his letters. And uh, I love that because it reminds me that all theology is practical, ultimately, and all the practical things, it flows out of theology. We can never separate those two things. Sure. And Paul highlights that the mind is playing a key role in how we live out the gospel, right? Right. So God is asking us to be transformed, to allow him to transform us, and Mm -hmm. he's telling us the way he does that is by renewing our minds. Uh, the Greek word means renovation. So you yep. can think about, you know, you're moving into a house, right? You're moving out some things, moving in some things, right. upgrading, sort of like that with our minds. We're moving out the old and moving in the new. And, you know, I think that's really, really relevant for us today to talk about. 
because something is always renewing our mind. Something is always forming our our cognitive framework, right. you know. And the question is, are we being formed by the cable news outrage machine or <laughs> are we being uh, formed by trolls masquerading as Christians on Facebook mm-hmm. or are we being formed by the Bible? So, you know, I've talked to other pastors here in town and elsewhere and really, man, this this is so relevant. Generally speaking, as pastors, we're watching our people, our congregations, just lose their grounding in the Bible. Yeah. They get me for an hour a week, but they get cable news hosts for hours and hours and hours every night. Yep. Uh, and they're on their phones scrolling through social media for hours and hours and hours every day. So it's a real challenge for us to help Christians renew their mind by the Bible, not by all these other fake things. Right. The things that we fill our days with. Mm-hmm. In Romans 12... Through 15 really give us examples of the cues that um, that Scripture gives us in numerous cases. That's right. So the rest of the book here is organized by relationship, I think. Uh, so the very next verse talks about our relationship with ourself. <laughs> and this is something I didn't m- mention in the sermon this week, but I think it's worth mentioning here on the podcast. Right after Paul said what we read earlier, he says this, For by the grace given me... I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And so one of the implications of renewing our minds, uh, thinking thinking God the way he wants to think about things, he wants us to think about ourselves correctly. And that's not too low and it's not too high. And really, if you look at this verse, I think what it's trying to say is this, living wisely starts with seeing yourself through the lens of faith, through the lens of the gospel. Hmm. So yes, you're a train wreck of a sinner, (laughs) but you're also saved and loved by God, created in his image. So there's this balance. There's this balance of humility and really just enjoying your cherished place as a child of God. Sober judgment about yourself. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that we are... uh, you know, we are depraved, total depravity was a thing, but we are also made righteous, and that's mm-hmm. important there. And from there, Paul goes on to talk about the church. Right. So you have to be transformed in your view of yourself, and you have to be transformed in your view of church, mm-hmm. too. We talked about this at some length in the sermon, so I'd encourage everybody to look it up. I won't reteach that here, but um, I think it's worth saying as often as I can, and I tell this to all of our new members' classes, I, I just say this as often as I can. Uh, church, the world would have you believe that church is like everything else in your life where you come expecting to receive and you ask what's in it for me. Mm -hmm. And really that's not at all the picture the Bible gives us of church. The picture that the Bible gives us of church is what's in me that's for others. Not what's in it for me, but what's God put in me that I need to pour out for others. Really good. And so Paul's basically in this whole section, he's saying, roll up your sleeves and get to work. God has given you a gift. And if you're going to view church rightly, mm-hmm. renew your mind, be transformed, your view of church is, man, Christianity is not a hobby. Take it or leave it. Squeeze it in where you can. <laughs> Do it when it's convenient. No, church is an all of life calling. And God's asking us to bring our best uh, not our leftovers. And so as Christians today, we need to hear that. You know, right. We need to hear Paul say, God has gifted you, and God expects you to use your gifts in church. That's what it looks like to have a renewed mind, a transformed view of church. That's right. And another thing that you 
talked about in your sermon that's in these uh, chapters is that Paul is also talking about our view of the government. Yeah. So we're transforming our view of how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to the church, and also how we relate to the government. That's an important relationship that is transformed by God's teaching here. And it's part of being a living sacrifice for God. Believe it or not, the way you interact with the government is part of being a living sacrifice Mm -hmm. for God. We don't think of it that way much, do we? (laughs) But Paul says it's part of your testimony. It's part of representing God well on earth. And here's what he says specifically, chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, that is, submit to the government, because there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He says it twice, just to make it really clear. Yeah. Verse 2, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. Uh, skipping down to verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. So again, you can look up the sermon for the full details, but I think it's really clear here. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of explanation if you read chapter 13. doesn't require you to know a lot of Greek. doesn't require you <laughs> to have been to seminary. doesn't require you to own a big expensive library of commentaries. Mm-hmm. The Bible is crystal clear about what is expected of believers submitting to the government. And the question is not so much do you understand this text, but will you actually do it? Yeah. Will you actually do it? Uh, will you allow the Bible to transform your view, uh, or will you just instead be conformed to how the rest of the world behaves toward government? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think this is, you know, what we've talked about is primarily the individual believer and their role with the government. But can we learn anything about the the role between the relationship of church and state? Yeah, there's a, a little bit of that in here. It's primarily about the individual believer and the government. Yeah. But I was reading John Stott on this, a uh, great author. He says, you know, there's a whole spectrum of beliefs about how church and state interact. So Erastinianism says the state controls the church. Mm-hmm. Okay, we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the other end of the spectrum, a theocracy, where the church controls the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, just look to, um, yeah, we don't want that either. We'll go into that some other time. But uh, <laughs> then there's all sorts of areas in between. So Constantinianism mm-hmm. uh, is a compromise where the state favors the church, and the church makes accommodations to keep that favored status. Right. Another gray area is just called partnership. Uh, John Stott says this is where the church and state both recognize each other, that they have distinct roles assigned by God. Yeah. So again, if you read Paul's letter, you know the the, uh, the, the sword is given to the state. Mm-hmm. One of the roles of government ordained by God is to restrain evil. That I don't take vengeance, it belongs to the Lord, but also God executes that through the state. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so John Stott would say this is the most biblical approach to church and state. It's a partnership, and they each have specific roles to play. And uh, again, as far as individual believers go, what does that look like? It looks like submit. You see it all throughout the Bible. Even in the Old Testament, remember Jeremiah the prophet uh, preaching to people who were in exile in Babylon, Mm -hmm. the most sinful of all empires, you know, and what does he say? 
He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So it's really shocking. The Bible (laughs) has a positive view of Babylon, has a positive view of the Roman Empire of Nero, asking his people to submit to it, to pray for it, to Mm -hmm. seek its good. How much more today in the United States of America should we be doing the same? Interesting. I think. This is my opinion. (laughs) And in these chapters, I keep seeing one word over and over, and that is love. It seems that... um, seems like the way that God wants us to be different is through love, right? Yeah, Romans 13, 8. It's pretty strong. Yeah. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Mm-hmm. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And so this flows right out of the government section. Yep. Paul has ended the government section by saying, pay your taxes, uh, pay what's due, And then he transitions with this play on words, and he says, also, here's something else that's due, Mm -hmm. is love. And this is a debt that you will always have outstanding. You will never give so much love that you're no longer called to love anymore. You can never say, I've done it. (laughs) That's it. You know, duty fulfilled. Um, So because of all that God has done for us, we'll always be love debtors. Wherever we go, church, work, shopping, school, whoever we meet, whatever we do, we owe love, Paul says. And in fact, you know, that is what's behind all the commandments God has given us. So Paul says this beautiful thing in the next verse, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be, they're all summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Beautiful. Just love, yeah. Paul says. Love like God wants you to love, and you will fulfill every commandment there is. That's good. Cool, huh? Yeah. And then in the following verses, Paul gives us another reason that we should devote ourselves to love. In verse 11, he says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in caressing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. What is Paul (laughs) saying here? It's interesting he tucks this in the middle of all this teaching, right? It's, uh, it's similar to what we had talked about earlier in the series about already and not yet. Yep. This intersection of these two eras that we live in right now. So just to recap, there will be a time in the future when everything is perfect and you know is just as God had originally intended. No sin, no suffering. That time is coming, but it is not here yet. Mm-hmm. And what is here now is the Christian church. And we get to bring a piece of that not yet into the already. We get to bring a piece of that kingdom that's coming into the here and now. So when we pray God's kingdom come, like in the Lord's Prayer, your your will uh, be done, you know, um, that's what we actually get to be the answer to our own prayer Mm. by bringing God's rule and reign, his kingdom into 
the here and now. That's what I think that's what he's getting at there. Uh, the dark, the darkness characterized by all those sins, that that era is fading away, and the day is coming. But as Christians, we get to behave like the day is already here, yeah, and bring a little bit of that daylight into this dark world. Yeah. So this entire application section of Paul's letter is really, simply put, about love. I think so. You know, love serves, as we saw in our discussion with the church. Mm-hmm. Love submits, as we saw in our discussion with the government. And then lastly, love is patient. Mm. And that's how he ends here in chapter 15. Um, this whole letter, remember we said, is anchored in a real historical situation. Right. That situation is the church in Rome. Jewish people had been expelled from Rome by the emperor. And uh, they are, as Paul writes this, just coming back into Rome. They're finding their church. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all Gentile now. Yeah. And that must have been a little disconcerting for them because... You know, Gentiles did not observe their traditions, the right. kosher requirements, the rituals, and the Sabbath uh, regulations they had in place. And so Paul's writing very practically, hey, two groups in your church, you know, your Gentiles are looking down on the Jews for not experiencing the freedom that they know is true in Christianity. And right. Paul says it is true. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's just meat. The Gentiles are correct to live in that freedom. Mm-hmm. But they're not right to look down on the Jews for not experiencing that freedom. And similarly, the Jews are judging the Gentiles for not keeping all of these legalistic rules. And Paul says that's not right either. (laughs) And so how does love come into this relationship? Uh, Chapter 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. In other words, you don't have to judge God is the judge. You know, you can stop judging people. Leave that up to God. John Stott said it like this, How dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. This principle is even better than the golden rule, to treat others as we would treat ourselves. It's safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it is even safer to still treat them as God does. Yeah, so we're not supposed to judge, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty hard to swallow sometimes. But Paul goes beyond that. He says that we have to not just tolerate each other, but actually accept and welcome and love each other. Right? Yeah, even the ones who are hard to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so chapter 15, verse 2, each of you, uh, each of us, should please our neighbors for their good, Mm -hmm. and build them up. So Paul is saying, yeah, we got to get beyond just tolerating each other, not judging each other. We got to do something positively, and that is to build people up. Tearing down is quick and easy. Building up takes time and effort. Oh, that's good. And so Tim Keller said, the way you can tell how much you understand the gospel is to look at how much you love people despite their flaws. Wow, that's convicting, huh? Mm-hmm. Do you say, if God overlooks my sins through Christ, how can I fail to do so with this person? Do I think I'm more righteous than God? So Tim Keller is oh. making it a measure of our Christian maturity, yeah. how much we understand the gospel by how much we apply it to other people. Yeah. I think that's true. And man, the church needs to hear this today. Even though the original text here is anchored in this first century 
squabble over things we don't squabble over anymore. <laughs> right. We have so many things that can still drive a wedge between us as Christians today. Yeah. So many disputable matters then and so many now. But it's such a small percentage of things. Mm-hmm. Just two, maybe 2% of the things that we disagree over. But you know what we focus on? That 2%. That 2%. <laughs> that's right. It, like I grew up, uh, you know, Sabbath in the Bible Belt was you can't eat out on Sunday because yeah. you're making someone work at a restaurant. Well, you know, if you think that, but I don't, I shouldn't judge you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you think you can't play cards or watch movies or listen to secular music or drink wine, that's fine. I can't judge you for that. Uh, no judging, no looking down. Instead, we should just do whatever builds our neighbor up. Yeah. So that's that's hard, right? I uh, I, sh- I shouldn't drink alcohol around you if I know it'll cause you stress and cause you to stumble, mm-hmm. because your well being is my top priority. And um, Paul ends the section by just saying, "Hey, you know what? That's the example of Christ. You want to have an example to follow? Follow the example of Christ." For even Christ, Paul says, did not please himself, as it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 69, 9, the insults of those who insult you has fallen on me. And then he explains why he quoted the Old Testament. I love this. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Isn't that cool? That's just yeah. like a little freebie, a little free like aside, little asterisk, little footnote Paul right. throws in the middle of all that. Everything that was written, all this stuff in the Old Testament, all of it was written to teach us, to teach us how to have endurance and how to have hope. Um, I think that's just amazing. Yeah. And that really finishes the, the main teaching or the main purpose of Paul's letter uh, in Romans. But there's still a chapter and a half left that we haven't talked about. It That's right. kind of feels like a, I don't know, like an epilogue or almost like an appendix, right? That's true. It, it in some ways, is. There's yeah. a lot we can learn from it still. Uh, we learn about Paul's missionary strategy. He tells mm-hmm. them, hey, here's what I've done and here's what I'm going to do next. Yeah. He talks about having taken the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to modern-day Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. 1,400 miles. I'm like, Wow. That's crazy. In sandals, At the time. Yeah, that's a right. long way to walk, right? Uh, or ride. But uh, yeah, and we learn he, he targeted population centers. We learned yep. that he really prioritized going where the, there weren't believers already, planting new churches. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting to see Paul's heart for missions. Yeah. And he says in chapter 15, verse 20, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Hmm. I think that's cool that his ambition is to preach the gospel. Uh, that's what he says is his goal in life. And, you know, he even gets into the practicalities. Yeah. He had been based out of Antioch. But I think in this letter, he's setting the stage for trying to make Rome his new home base mm-hmm. so he can press even further out into Spain. So he kind of he writes them with that expectation, and he, yeah. he asks them to pray for him, and he greets people by name. He greets 33 people by name in a church he's never been to. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that alone is amazing that Paul loves people so much. He's keeping track of, you know, before Facebook, when it's easy to see, yeah. he, he knows these people yeah. and is praying for them and caring for them, uh, and that's amazing. And then he ends with this beautiful benediction, the last verses of Romans, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, 
the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. And then he ends, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So I just love it. At the very end, he, he, re, he restates, hey, it is the gospel that establishes us. It is the gospel that it's almost like uh, the firm foundation, that rock you can build your life on. The gospel is what can establish you um, to make you stand. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Great way to end. That's a really great way to end. And that really finishes our study in Romans. So why don't you tell us what's next? So up next, we're going to talk about how to disagree well. There's a lot to disagree about in today's world. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how to disagree without being disagreeable and then focus on missions before taking an Advent break. So we'll uh, end season one there. But you know what? At the end of this study, I want to encourage everybody, hey, if you are just jumping in at this point, Mm -hmm. go back and check out the earlier episodes. Go back and watch those earlier sermons. Uh, I even know some people that have told me they watched some of the sermons like three times trying to get deeper into it, especially yeah. last week's about yeah. predestination. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. <laughs> and, you know, maybe maybe God wants you to go all the way back to Romans chapter 1 yeah. and read through the entire thing again. And, man, I would, I would uh, advocate you do that because God will just amaze you with the fresh insights, the deeper applications that yeah. you'll get that second time through. I think it's safe to say that every time you read through something like Romans, God's going to reveal something new. So Absolutely. That's good. Yeah. Well, that wraps up our book, uh, or our study through Romans. Make sure you hit subscribe, whether you're watching or listening, and uh, we will see you next week. Next week.